From the WGLT Newsroom, good morning, I'm Jack Pelasnik. The normal public library could close in just a few weeks for its asbestos removal and renovation project. Library Director John Fisher says now that the board has approved a $5.1 million bid for the work, the library will firm up plans to continue offering services. He says library programs will move off-site. Sort of like we did for the pandemic. We were in the public parks. We were in a uh, town of normal buildings at the Community Activity Center. We continue to partner with many of our partnering organizations, ISU included, the Illinois Arts Station, the Bloomington Public Library. Fisher says the library will also take temporary space in Uptown to offer Wi-Fi, computer access, fax, printing, scanning, magazines, and newspapers. He says books and other media will be available for pickup, as will interlibrary loan materials. Public television station WTVP lost nearly $870,000 in its last fiscal year. The station's delayed annual audited financial statement was recently published to the station website. Auditors say they believe the Peoria-based station can meet its financial obligations for the upcoming fiscal year. That's thanks in large part to the $1.2 million committed by unnamed private donors. The auditors say cuts are also helping to contain costs. Bloomington police say they and normal police have arrested a 15-year-old boy for a shooting overnight on February 8th. A 17-year-old boy received multiple gunshot wounds to his leg in the 1000 block of West Market Street. The injuries were not life-threatening. Officers arrested the 15-year-old juvenile in normal for aggravated battery with a firearm. And Governor J.B. Pritzker helped cut the ribbon on a new $17 million advanced manufacturing center, including an electric vehicle lab at Heartland Community College in Normal. You are a model for the rest of the state. Heartland was the first community college in Illinois to launch an EV training program, sparked in part by Rivian's growth in the McLean County's second largest employer. Heartland President Keith Corneal says his teachers aren't keeping their curriculum a secret. And we're sharing it with other community colleges across the state in order to move the state forward as a leader in electric vehicle and energy storage. The new 45,000 square foot training center includes the State Farm Electric Vehicle Lab. Heartland offers an associate's degree in EV technology plus several EV-related certificates. I'm Jack Palasnik. Support for WGLT comes from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting's Community Service Grant and from a grant from the Illinois Arts Council Agency. These grants help fund Morning Edition, All Things Considered, and other programming on which you depend for news, information, and entertainment. Additional support comes from WGLT users. This is 89.1 WGLT and WGLT.org. Next time on 1A, what can the results of the Michigan primary tell us about the path ahead for both Democrats and Republicans? Join us for the latest from the Great Lakes State. I'm Jen White, host of 1A. Listen at 9 a.m. on WGLT, Bloomington Normals Public Radio. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Michelle Martin. Good morning. The Alabama legislature could vote soon on whether to protect in vitro fertilization treatments. IVF treatments there are largely on hold after the state Supreme Court said fertilized eggs have the same rights as children. It's not just Alabama where lawmakers are debating whether a fetus is a person. NPR's Ryland Barton is with us now with the latest and also some broader context about this. Good morning. 
Good morning. Okay, so let's start with the new development in Alabama. We've been waiting on bills to be introduced to address last week's state Supreme Court ruling, and I take it we now have them? Yeah, we do. So just a quick reminder how we got here. This all stems from a lawsuit by three Alabama couples whose frozen embryos were accidentally destroyed by a fertility clinic. Justices ruled that an 1872 law allowing parents to sue over the death of a child applies to, quote, unborn children. This immediately raised concerns about in vitro fertilization in the state. There's a lot of pressure to come up with a quick legislative fix for this. And yesterday afternoon, state Republican lawmakers proposed two bills that would exempt IVF from the effect of the ruling. However, one key measure no longer includes a definition of viability for an embryo. That's um, That bill's author told Troy Public Radio he took that out of his draft in order to get the bill passed. That means even if this bill becomes law, frozen embryos would remain children as defined by the state Supreme Court. Now, you know, this, this ruling has gotten attention far beyond Alabama. Why is that? Yeah, so because the U.S. Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade, the constitutional right to abortion, uh, ever since that ruling two years ago, states have been in charge of regulating abortion, and advocates have been on the lookout for anything that further erodes reproductive rights. And of course, this is also a big election year, and Republicans are worried about this issue. So shortly after the ruling, GOP presidential frontrunner Donald Trump said he supports IVF, And in a memo obtained by NPR, the fundraising arm for the Senate Republicans warned their candidates that the ruling could be, quote, fodder for Democrats hoping to manipulate the abortion issue for electoral gain. Is there a sense that what happened in Alabama could affect other states? Well, not directly, but it does raise these questions about fetal personhood. And since Roe v. Wade was overturned, Republican policymakers in some states are trying to restrict reproductive rights through this fetal personhood mechanism. I spoke with Candace Gibson. She's the state policy director at the Guttmacher Institute, which supports abortion rights and tracks abortion legislation. She says the Alabama decision could reverberate in other states. I am fearful that other anti-abortion judges and lawyers will be emboldened by this ruling and trying to really replicate those efforts. I would be surprised if they didn't. In fact, 14 states are already considering fetal personhood bills now, though they try to do it in different ways. So so what, what different ways? Um, So Republican lawmakers in Colorado and Iowa proposed bills this year that would define personhood as beginning at fertilization when it comes to homicide and wrongful death laws, and that includes no exceptions for IVF. At least six states have bills that would allow women to seek child support for fetuses. Georgia already has a law like that on the books. And although these proposals don't explicitly have anything to do with IVF, reproductive rights advocates say that even granting limited protections to embryos and fetuses could have broader implications like we saw in Alabama. That is NPR's Rylan Barton. Rylan, thank you. Thank you. Palestinians are hoping to speak with one voice eventually in the conflict with Israel. Right now, Palestinians are divided. Hamas governs the remnants of Gaza as an Israeli offensive continues there. A separate territory, the West Bank, has an essentially separate government led by President Mahmoud Abbas. It's dominated by Fatah, which is Hamas's longtime rival. So the West Bank is divided from Gaza by geography and politics and power. And now they're trying to unify. 
As a first step, Abbas's prime minister offered his resignation this week, so what happens next? We called a Palestinian leader, Mustafa Barghouti, who leads the Palestinian National Initiative, which is one of many Palestinian political parties. Why did the prime minister resign now? Well, he resigned because there is a lot of pressure on the Palestinian Authority that there is a need for reform. As you know, we have uh, lost our democratic system during the last few years since we did not have elections since 2006. Mm -hmm. And we don't have separation of powers. I mean, all the powers, executive, legislative and and, uh, judiciary, are in the hands of the president and a small number of people with him. And uh, that's why we think that this resignation could hopefully lead to the formation of a national unity interim government. I would like to make sure that I understand what you mean when you say a national unity interim government. Do you mean a single government that would have at least some authority over both the West Bank and Gaza? Absolutely, because it has to maintain the unity between West Bank and Gaza and prevent Netanyahu's plan to replace uh, the Palestinian legitimate structures with a bunch of collaborators that work under his military occupation. I will just note the way that the Israeli government has phrased this, the way that Prime Minister Netanyahu has phrased it, is that he would like someone to run Gaza while Israel would have uh, overall security control and the right for its military to go where they would want to go uh, in Gaza. But Netanyahu has also said... He is unwilling to see a unified government of Gaza and the West Bank. What makes you believe that they would allow that? It doesn't matter whether he allows it or not. What matters is what we do ourselves. And Netanyahu doesn't want unified government between West Bank and Gaza because he wants to kill the idea of Palestinian statehood. He wants to kill the idea of two-state solution. And when he says he wants to keep security control, he means he wants to have full military occupation of Gaza and West Bank. And he wants uh, some kind of a quizzling government subservient to him. Mahmoud Abbas, the Palestinian president, has said that uh, his group will not return to Gaza atop an Israeli tank. Would this effectively be returning to Gaza atop an Israeli tank? Not if it's a national unity government. If it is a pure Fatah government, yes, this would be the case. But if it is a national unity government accepted by all Palestinian groups, then he would be coming back to Gaza with the will of Palestinian forces, not the will of Israelis. I see what you're saying. If only his party were to get back into Gaza, that would be something done with Israeli power. But if they are welcomed in by Hamas, that would be something that is done by Palestinians. That's your point of view. Palestinians are not only Hamas and Fatah. There are 14 different political forces in Palestine. Including yours, sure. Including ours. And we are non-Fatah, non-Hamas. We are a third democratic party. We are ranking third now in all polls. And uh, we should all be included. Someone listening to this may hear you saying that you would reach an accommodation with Hamas and feel that what you're saying is that you're reaching an accommodation with a terror group that wants the elimination of Israel. Would that be true? No, because they are not a terror group. And if you call Hamas terrorists, what do you call the Israeli illegal settlers who are attacking us around the clock? Uh, I think these expressions don't reflect the reality. And the reality is that we need to stop violence. We need to stop war. We need to stop the aggression that is taking place on Gaza. That's also terror. Let's set aside for a moment the term terrorist or terror group. You would be reaching an accommodation with the group that attacked Israel on October 7th, 
of last year, killing something around 1,200 Israelis. Are you comfortable with that? As much as the United States is comfortable dealing with Israel, that killed 37,000 Palestinians, including 11,000 children. What's the difference? I guess our latest figure is not not to quibble. Our, our latest figure is 29,000. Do you have a larger? Okay, uh, yes, but because you don't count the 7,000 people missing under the rubble, that nobody get, can get to the bodies of people. But let it be only 29,000. Is that acceptable? Where does that put Israel? I think if you deal with Israel, we have to deal with Hamas. So when Israel says their strategic goal is to destroy Hamas, you consider that to be impossible, and Hamas must be part of the solution, is what you're saying? Not only me. I think so many people are saying that, including Americans. It's impossible to destroy a movement. What Israel is destroying is the potential for peace. If you get to a ceasefire and you have a national unity government of the kind that you describe, it's possible for me to imagine a situation evolving that is similar to what happens in the West Bank, in that there is a very limited Palestinian self-government and Israeli security forces do what they deem necessary. They have security control of varying degrees in varying parts of the West Bank. Is that a sustainable solution for Gaza, at least in the short term? No, it's a sustainable solution for Palestinian internal governance so that we can stand up to this occupation and end it. But no sustainable peace will be there without Israel ending its occupation of West Bank, Gaza, East Jerusalem, and allowing Palestinians to practice their self-determination and having a state of their own. To be clear for those who are curious, does your party support a two-state solution, meaning there would still be an Israel uh, 1967 borders or some such borders? Yes, but that's what Israel is rejecting. Netanyahu is declaring every day that he will not allow a Palestinian state. That's the problem that the United States has to deal with. United States is the only country in the world that can stop this situation and open the road to real peace. Either two-state solution, two-sovereign-state solution, or one democratic state with equality for everybody, where we will be accepted as equal human beings. Mr. Barghouti, thanks very much for the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you so much. Mustafa Barghouti is a Palestinian politician, leader of the party called the Palestinian National Initiative. You can find more coverage and many differing views and analysis of the Israel-Hamas war at npr.org slash Middle East. This is NPR News. I'm Celeste Headley. We'll bring you coverage and analysis of the Michigan primary. And have you noticed more people getting sick in your workplace this winter? Respiratory illness rates have stayed high for months, and it's leading to a new phenomenon, sick shaming. Next time on Here and Now. Next time for Here and Now is today at noon on 89.1 WGLT and WGLT.org. When you take the on-ramp to WGLT's Highway 309, you're on the expressway to music discovery. Our eclectic music format features great music in many genres, from Celeste to Buddy Guy 
to artists living right here in central Illinois. You'll discover new music on Highway 309. Merge on right now at WGLT.org and weekends on 89.1 FM. From your car radio to your smart speaker. NPR meets you where you are in a lot of different ways. Now we're in your pocket. Download the NPR app today. Go to npr.org slash app to listen to WGLT and NPR on your time. Have you ever wondered how you would feel if tomorrow you woke up and public radio was just gone? Oh, man, that would be tough. I think it would be devastating. There's an easy way to feel good about public radio and the financial health of your station. Just support it. Really, do it right now. Call or go online. Your tax-deductible contribution will help ensure public radio isn't going anywhere. Fund public radio for the public good with your contribution at WGLT.org. From the campus of Illinois State University. This is 89.1 WGLT Normal. Part of the NPR Network. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Workday. With AI at the core of its platform, Workday is committed to delivering continuous innovation to help teams stay agile. Workday, the finance and HR platform for a changing world. From the Walton Family Foundation, working to create access to opportunity for people and communities by tackling tough social and environmental problems. More information is at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. From Progressive Insurance, home of the Name Your Price tool, so drivers can see coverage options. At Progressive.com or 1-800-PROGRESSIVE. Price and coverage match limited by state law. And from ECMC Foundation at ecmcfoundation.org. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Michelle Martin. Good morning. Nurses around the country are telling lawmakers there are not enough of them working in hospitals, and they say that is putting patients' lives at risk. Those concerns led California and Oregon to enact laws limiting the number of patients under a single nurse's care. But when other states tried to do the same, the hospital industry blocked them. Now, Kate Wells with Michigan Public Radio tells us family members of patients are joining the fight. It has been one year since Tim Lillard lost his wife, Anne. She'd get up with me every morning, even though she was retired, and we'd make breakfast together. I mean, we were best friends. Tim is a police detective in a Detroit suburb, and he couldn't stop thinking about that month that Anne spent in the hospital after a COVID infection. Nurses there told him that they were understaffed, and he saw them having to rush constantly from one crisis to the next. Alarms would go off for the medications. They'd come to the room, shut off the alarm when they get low, run to the medication room, come back, set them down, go to the next room, shut off alarms, and that was going on all the time. While she was in the hospital, Anne caught pneumonia and she had to be intubated. But then, finally, Anne seemed to be doing better. Nurses told Tim that they were getting ready to discharge her to a rehab center where she could continue recovering. And then one morning, Tim came in as usual, and a nurse told him Anne had a bad night. When I walked in, they were doing CPR, and our son walked in right after. And at 12.30, they had pronounced and stopped CPR. What Tim couldn't understand was how did Anne go from about to be discharged to dying seemingly overnight? 
So he started investigating. He talked to nurses, a doctor, hospital administrators, and he says everybody told him the same thing. It could have been sepsis. Sepsis is when an infection in the body triggers a larger chain reaction that can cause organ failure. Some sepsis deaths, though, are preventable if staff can catch it early. But when they don't have enough help, they don't get to spend that time to be able to determine the difference of is it COVID, is it the flu, or is it sepsis? One study found that for every additional patient a nurse had to care for, the mortality rate from sepsis went up 12 percent, which is why one year after Ann's death, Tim went to the state capitol. The House Health Policy will come to order. Would the clerk please take attendance? Tim was there to testify in favor of the Safe Patient Care Act. It would create mandatory nurse-to-patient ratios in Michigan hospitals. It's my belief, had there been nurses adequately staffed, the subtle changes in her health would have been caught and she'd still be alive. Thank you, Mr. Lillard, for that. Over the past year, nurses in states like Washington, Michigan, Minnesota, Maine, and Pennsylvania have all pushed for this. They're telling lawmakers that hospitals have tried to save money by keeping staffing levels too low and that that has created a crisis. Last year, I coded someone in an ICU for 10 minutes all alone because there was no one to help me. Sometimes up to 11 patients per nurse. I have been left as the only specially trained nurse to take care of eight babies on the unit, eight fragile newborns. That was Jamie Brown, Rachel Hunt, and Carolyn Clemens. They're all Michigan nurses. Another nurse, Nakia Parker, says she left her full-time job in the ER because of low staffing. And she told Michigan lawmakers, this is not a shortage of nurses. This is a shortage of nurses who are willing to work in these conditions. If the Safe Patient Care Act is passed and we have ratios, I'm one of those nurses who would return to the bedside full-time. And so many of my coworkers that have left would join me. But to many lawmakers, mandatory ratios feel like a really big risk. Michigan Republican State Representative Graham Filler asked, what happens if there just aren't enough nurses? We're going to severely hamper health care in the state of Michigan. I'm talking closed wards because you can't meet the ratio, inability for a hospital to treat an emergent patient. So it feels kind of to me like a gamble we're taking. Michigan hospitals say that if the state starts mandating ratios, they will have to turn patients away. Tim Lillard watched this debate from his seat at the statehouse hearing. That's a scare tactic, in my opinion, where these hospitals say we're going to have to start closing stuff down. Tim does not think that a single law will magically fix everything. But he says it's gotten to a point where something has to change. The only way these hospitals are going to make any changes and even start moving towards making it better is if they're forced to. So Tim is making this his mission. He doesn't want other families to have to have the same what-ifs. For NPR News, I'm Kate Wells in Ann Arbor, Michigan. This story comes from NPR's partnership with Michigan Public and KFF Health News. How much does it cost for a fast food burger? For Wendy's customers, the answer could vary. NPR's Joe Hernandez reports the announcement comes as more industries experiment with fluctuating prices. Surge pricing isn't new. Airlines began doing it in the 1980s, and more recently, ride-sharing apps like Uber have hiked prices when demand increases. Now the fast food business is looking to dish up dynamic pricing, too. Here's Wendy's president and CEO, Kirk Tanner, speaking to investors during a February earnings call. Beginning as early as 2025, we will begin testing more enhanced features like dynamic pricing and day part offerings. 
Many took those comments to mean Wendy's was about to launch surge pricing, but the company told NPR in an email that it's hoping to use dynamic pricing to drive traffic to its restaurants during the slower parts of the day, not raise prices at peak times. Rob Shumsky is a professor at the Tuck School of Business at Dartmouth. He says when companies change their prices as demand ebbs and flows, it can confuse and annoy customers. It can reduce the trust between consumers and people who provide services. If you can't depend on a price being at a certain level, you're going to hesitate to go back. Shumsky says companies often announce price hikes during peak periods ahead of time, such as more expensive theme park tickets on weekends. But more recently, technology has made it easier for prices to change in real time, a trend popping up everywhere from hotels to movie theaters. If price is the same throughout the entire day, they are actually losing revenue during those peak period times. But Shumsky says surge pricing can actually benefit consumers. Prices may be higher during busy periods, but that means they could come down during off-peak times, and customers might actually see a discount. Joe Hernandez, NPR News. This is NPR News. Living in the aftermath of climate-driven disasters is incredibly difficult for most Americans. But dealing with a disaster on top of the financial strain of being in college is even harder. I couldn't sleep very well. I was not doing very well in classes. And then every time it rained, I just had a freak out. Hear the unique challenges for college students in the face of climate change on All Things Considered from NPR News. Listen today at 3 on 89.1 WGLT and WGLT.org. There are plans afoot to convert empty New York City offices into housing, repurposing that copy room into a bathroom next time on Marketplace. Listen to Marketplace beginning at 5.30 this afternoon on WGLT, sponsored by CEFQ. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Amy Held. Former President Donald Trump won every county in the Michigan primary, beating Nikki Haley, who performed most strongly in college towns and suburbs. And it's unclear whether Trump can expand his Republican base in the swing state this fall. And on the Democratic side, President Biden won, but a protest campaign against his support for Israel exceeded its own expectations. Russ McNamara from member station WDET reports. For the past month, the group listened to Michigan urge voters to mark their ballots uncommitted as a call for the president to change policy and broker a permanent ceasefire. The group had hoped to pick up 10,000 votes, but that goal was easily surpassed shortly after polls closed. State Representative Abraham Ayash says other states will likely copy Michigan's success, but hopes it's not necessary. I met two organizers, one from Washington State, one from Arizona, that flew into Michigan just to sort of get a sense of what we were doing, how we were doing it, and they are inspired to try to do something very similar. President Biden did not address the uncommitted campaign in an election night statement. For NPR News, I'm Russ McNamara in Dearborn, Michigan. Congressional leaders are voicing optimism. They can reach a deal before a deadline Friday to avert a partial government shutdown. Party leaders from both chambers met with Biden yesterday, though divisions appear to remain on funding for Ukraine. 
This is NPR News.